Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. So Rick would not say this about himself, and I'm not speaking hyperbolically when I say this. As I said on, on Friday, I think Rick is the finest biblical counselor in our world today. Um, that's my opinion uh, from my personal travels in the counseling world. His, his ministry has had a real positive, lasting impact on my personal life and my life as one of your pastors now for 20 years. His teachings help shape uh, my own counseling. Now, I say his teaching. It's really Christ's teaching because that's what he's teaching us. But in all of that, I am forever grateful because it has helped me in so, way, so many ways. And so for those of you who've joined us for the first time today, I would like to give you a little info about Rick and Lucia before he comes up. Uh, Lucia is a graduate from BJU with a degree in business admin, which she uses skillfully, I might add. She's the liaison uh, for the ministry board there, the team members, the financial services, and the customer relations. And Rick launched the Life Over Coffee, our Coffee Global Training Network in 2008, as he said, to bring hope and help for you and others by creating resources that spark conversations for transformation, and they do. And his primary responsibilities are resource creation and leadership development, which he does through speaking and writing, podcasting, and educating like he's doing here this morning. In 1990, he earned a B.A. in theology, and in 1991, a B.S. in education. And in 1993, he received his ordination into Christian ministry, and in 2000, he graduated with an M.A. in counseling from the Master's University, which is a good school. And in 2006, he was recognized as a fellow of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. But with all that, none of that is important to me as that I've seen it in his character and how he lives. I've seen that, I've I've been with him enough in the world as we go out in the world, as we have free time in the conferences and as I have conversations with him, that he's trying to, to the best of Christ's ability in him to live this out. But this morning, would you welcome him once again with a good, a warm Ozark welcome. Come on up, brother. So I finished all the writing for a book on anger, and I want to share a chapter of that book with you all this morning on anger. As I told folks in the Sunday school, I'm not interested in writing books to write books. I write books on topics that really have application to all of us. And so I've written a book on marriage, broad application for all of us. On suffering, absolutely that applies to all of us how to change, and those three books are out on the table. Well, anger applies to all of us, too, because all of us have gotten angry. The majority of us have gotten angry this week. Some of us are, this is how it starts. (laughs) James says, when you desire and you do not have. And, uh, Thankfully, uh, we have father figures in our lives that can help us and shepherd us. And that's what we want to do. Uh, If you were to ask me to define uh, what a man is, uh, there's one word in the Bible that defines a man better than any other, and it's the word father. 
And it doesn't matter if the man has a child or not. It doesn't matter if the man is eight or 88. We, you are a man when you are fatherly. And as we were rearing our one son, those were the traits that we were looking for in him. Is he fatherly? Jason just reminded me of that as he was taking the baby out. Being fatherly is the purest definition of a man. The father made a man, Adam, in his image. And the best way that Adam can image the father is by being fatherly. And so we looked at those traits in our son when he was three, four, and five. Did, does he have fatherly traits? And he does. And we have seen him grow up all these years as he takes care of his sisters. Protective, deferring, kind. He is fatherly. And he does the same for his mother. And it's a beautiful trait when you see a man being a man, that he is being fatherly. Unfortunately, all of us have had experiences with fathers and mothers uh, that were not good experiences. Every child to varying degrees is treated poorly by a parent. And whether you are a parent now or you were a child once upon a time. I wish I had another story to tell you, but that is the story that we are familiar with. To varying degrees, we were treated poorly by our parents. Victimization is not okay, but it's a fact about the fallout of our fallenness that people will hurt us. And the people that will hurt us the most are typically those who are closest to us. And if the child doesn't know how to process the hurt, or if the child doesn't know how to cast that hurt on Christ, they will probably grow up bitter. As I did. The good news is, is that if you find yourself in the snare of bitter victimization, there is a way out. There is hope. There is help. Because Christ came to set captives free, which is what he did for me. And I want to share an illustration of that with my relationship with my father. My dad took his first drink of alcohol when he was 21 years old. He had his last drink 21 years later. Between his first and his last, he never stopped drinking. He was a mean, uncaring drunk. When he drank, he got angry. And if dad was not sulking in a chair, he was yelling at one of his five boys. I do not recall hearing the word love in our home unless it was blaring from one of our classic rock albums. 
Nazareth, loud and proud. Love hurts. Television and rock songs were my tutors. To experience reciprocating love was something that normal families did, not ours. Our family was not normal by any standard. I never called my dad dad, never called my dad father. We had a nickname for him, which I won't mention here, but we called him that name all the days of our lives. Those words were absent from me, dad and father, just as much as love was absent. It was 10 years after he died before I used the word dad while referencing him. It was hard to say father when I was talking about my father. And it did take literally, literally 10 years. And even as I say those words, Words today, D-A-D, or, or Father, it, it still seems a little bit odd to me because that person and fatherly do not collate in my mind. From my first birth to my second birth, God regenerated me when I was 25. Life was one ongoing, uninterrupted, dysfunctional stream of pain and disappointment. My life's goal as a teenager was to get out of our home and away from my father. I accomplished my goal my 15th year. When I moved in with my grandmother, and though I never looked back, anger came with me. It was my constant companion. I do not blame my dad any longer for my turbulent teen years or the bad things I chose to do during that season. I made all the choices. Though there is no denying that he was an instrumental adverse effect shaping influence in my life, mercifully the Lord gave me another perspective after he saved me as only he could. The perspective is... What your daddy meant for evil, God would flip the narrative by using the horror show of my childhood as a redemptive masterpiece. James says, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The year was 1978. Dad died in his sleep. He was 42 years old. The layman's diagnosis was that he drank himself to death. That was probably true. But he had kidney, liver, heart, and a few other known and unknown complications. Amazingly, he was a healthy and athletic policeman before he started drinking. At the end of his life, he was a barely employable third shift production worker who went from job to job. I was 19 years old when he died. When I was 12 years old, I stopped attending church. My mother had long lost her ability to make us attend the local Baptist church. The church was never relevant to us anyhow. It was just another place to find good weed from some of the deacon's children. 
not knowing Christ or his purposes for the church, finding good weed in the Lord's house did not seem unusual to me. All five of us eventually unhooked from the religious scene because there was better grass in greener pastures where tie-dyes and flip-flops were the norms. The word cloud that hovered over my childhood had anger and fear and hate and rebellion and discouragement and discontentment in it. There were a few highs and even more lows. Shortly after leaving home, the police arrested me for breaking and entering. It is incredible to think how a kid could be so messed up and angry in such a short period of time. How in the world in 15 years could you be so messed up? The focal point of my hate was my father. He was the most likely target. He was a mean man until he fell asleep the last time in 1978. I arrived at my parents' home in time to see the EMS take him out, covered by a white sheet on a gurney. It was not supposed to happen this way. He was only 42 years old. He was not supposed to die. Not yet. I still had more hating to do. I was not done up to that point, my life was one big joke wrapped in anger, and he had the last laugh by playing one final trick on me. He died. I remember his death and succeeding funeral like it was yesterday. It was at his funeral that motivated me to say something that I had never uttered before as I walked up to his casket and I looked over and saw his dead body. I said these words that had never come out of my mouth. I love you. When you're mad at someone, you do not think about them dying. It was that moment when I snapped out of my angry stupor. That is when I realized that I had held on to my anger too long. The hurt and what he did had so captured me that it never occurred to me that he would die. I was not finished being angry. I had more hating to do. This thing was not over. Our hostile relationship was not complete. Our relationship had finished its natural course. We were at the end of the road. My daddy hurt me. He abused me verbally. He abused me physically. Each day in our home was a replay of the previous day's infliction of pain and disappointment. He dealt out punishment, and I counted the days until I could get away from him and the rest of my family for the rest of my life. Hate controlled my heart. And though I rarely said anything to my father, my soul was ablaze with fear and anger. And then he died. Death is the great equalizer that puts all sin into perspective. And even though dad's death was more profound than my anger, his death did not remove my anger or the accompanying bitterness. 
It's stunning how the instigator can long leave the scene, but the bitter effects linger like an unwelcome, oppressive companion. I lived in regret for many years for being so stubbornly proud, only complicating matters because I realized I had played the fool. Six years later, someone introduced me to the other man who died too soon. When the father opened my eyes to the death of the Son of God, everything changed. I became acutely aware how we live in a fallen world full of fallen people. And I was one of them, and I began to understand the universality of sin, the universal nature of sin. For the first time in my life, a better answer for my childhood dysfunction became clear to me. My father was a sinner who sinned, for all have sinned. He chose an unrighteous path, and all those in his path experienced his darkness. I was in his path. But he was not the only unrighteous person in our family. I too chose the wrong path. The sin that Adam gave to him, Adam gave to me. I was just like my father. There is none righteous. No, not one. I had no right standing before God. I was similar to my father. To where the stratification of sin that I envision, his sin is worse than my sin, it kept me perched in the air of superiority. And then when I met Jesus, that stratification came crashing down and it collapsed at the foot of the cross where I could only see a level playing field and Christ in the middle of it. The death of Christ began to take my perspective off what he did to me and it placed it on what I have done to God. Maybe somebody has hurt you. Perhaps you can make as strong a case against that person who hurt you as I did against my father. According to my godless calculating, my dad was a worse sinner than me. But at some level of my awareness, I knew I was sinful too. And it was easy to compare tit for tat. And when I did that, I could hold on to my anger while playing the victim card. It's a victim mindset that fuels ongoing unabated anger. The truth is, I am no different from my dad. There are no gradations of sinners when you stare at a Savior on a cross. My dad was a sinner. So am I. My dad sinned. So do I. My dad needed Christ. So did I. Typically, when there is a relational brokenness between a child and a parent, the child is the one articulating how the sinful parent has hurt him or her. That is a necessary discussion, and I am not dismissing it as though it is unimportant, but it is not the only discussion that must happen. In almost every case, the child's thinking will be more about what someone did to him or her than what he has done to his Lord. 
And I made that mistake. I spent more time thinking about what my dad did wrong to me than what I did wrong to God. It was unwitting, self-induced poisoning of my soul. As I began to come to terms with the gospel, I began to see with new eyes as it applied to my choices. The angry fog began to lift. I was a self-righteous victim. A self-righteous victim is more aware of and irritated by someone else's sin than being more conscious of and grieved by their sin against the holy God. As the gospel began to come into view, I realized my dad was not the biggest sinner in the room. Like Paul, my opinion of myself began to plummet. I am the foremost sinner. The incremental lowering of my self-esteem freed me from the anger that poured out of my entitled heart. After I took my position with the Apostle Paul as the chief sinner, where I found my dad hanging out, as well as Adolf Hitler and all the other evil people in the world, there I sat too. No better, no worse. It was there that I began to experience the freedom, gospel-centered freedom. In Mark 2.17, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Nothing has ever happened to you or happened to me that is eviler than our sin against God. The gospel levels the playing field. It eventually released me from my anger and the hurt of my past. But more than that, the gospel gave me understanding. For the first time, I began to get my dad. I understood him. His life and his choices made sense to me because I am just like him. It takes one to know one. It was only by accepting how I was like him, a broken sinner in need of a great God, that I could be free from him. The more I resisted him as a fallen sinner, the more I resisted the truth about myself, the more I tried to set myself apart from him, the further I was distancing myself from the truth of God's word and the power of the gospel. If there is a fraction of unforgiveness in your heart for what someone did to you, it is impossible to be entirely free from their actions. It no longer mattered who sinned the most. The real issue was whether I would humble my heart before Almighty God and plead for His forgiveness for my crimes against Him. It is possible that my dad did more sinning than I did. I don't know. Only God knows. I'm not through sinning yet. Who knows? I may beat him after all. 
It's like the person who finishes the marathon first. They have the best time until those who come later. I am still running my race. Maybe after I am dead, we will tally up our sins. We will categorize them and we will see who is more guilty. But before we go there, here's the gospel truth. My dad was just like me. He was a sinner in need of a great God. He was hopeless, spiritually bankrupt, desperate, and entangled in sin. And so was I. And that truth released me from my anger. The only remaining sadness for me is I cannot tell my dad about the redemptive and transformative power of the gospel. Because I had more hating to do, there was no room in my heart for the restorative power of Jesus. My appeal to all of us If you have anger in your heart towards someone, will you be humble and honest enough to own your sin and seek to do what is correct regarding that relationship? Whether it will heal or not, whether it will be restorative or not is not the question. Will you be humble enough, honest enough to own your sin and at least seek to do what is correct regarding that relationship? If you can make peace or if you will attempt to make peace with an adversary today, would you please do it? Please don't wait until it's impossible. Let the power of the gospel rule your attitude and your actions. The gospel released me from the hatred I had for my father. It was the gospel that motivated me to stop hating him. What have you received that God has not given to you? For by grace I have been saved. I am just like my father, except for some reason. God said, I want you. I will save you. And I stopped hating my dad. Father in heaven, thank you. For reframing the past and helping me to see what I would not see, what I could not see. Help, thank you for removing the scales from my eyes and giving me a new vision, a cross eyed vision where the Savior is much bigger than those who have hurt me, particularly my father. Thank you for the grace to forgive, at least in my heart. Thank you for freeing me from all the victimized bitterness and anger that I carried for so long. Holy Spirit, would you do what you do?
Would you seek all of our hearts? Would you bring conviction where conviction needs to be? Would you bring hope where hope needs to be? Will you bring healing where healing needs to be? Lord, you know all hearts. You know the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We are naked before you. There is nothing hidden. And so please go and do that wondrous work. In Christ's name, amen. God bless. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.